turning then this evening to Isaiah chapter 53 and considering the the first verse of this uh, wonderful song, part of which we're looking at together at our communion season. Who's Who is a reference book that or publication that is well known uh, to us. It's into its 175th edition uh, this year, published originally in, in hardback, and many of you have probably received this and read this, what's from 1999 being published online. It lists and gives information about people around the world who are influential on British life. That's who's who. UK, notable figures from government, politics, academia, business, sport and arts are found in the Who's Who 2023. Over 33,000 people are recorded in this publication. In this verse, the the, the writer mentions who twice. This is his interest, his quest, his question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This writer is not interested so much in the movers and shakers of his nation and of his world in the 8th century BC. But he does want to know about a certain group, a number of people, a body of individuals who have the audacity, the nerve, the foolishness, the hardness of heart not to believe the gospel. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Questions are useful tools in our conversation, aren't they? We use them to gain information from others sometimes, or we use them on ourselves to help us clarify in our own minds an issue that we're contemplating. Is the house worth thinking of buying in good repair? Is it close to work or family? Is it big enough? We ask and answer these questions to ourselves, of ourselves, by ourselves. And this seems to be what's happening in this verse. The writer is speaking with himself, pondering, wondering over this issue, seeking to clarify it in his mind. John Calvin says that that the writer pauses here in the account of the work of the servant. We've been noticing in our studies from verse 13 of the previous chapter that he's describing the servant, the exaltation of the servant, and then the humiliation of the servant, and then this influence of the servant on rulers and kings. And now the writer pauses. He asks this question about this report that he's been giving, this incredible story that he's been announcing. And he's asking this question and he he lingers over it. Who has believed him? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
this wonderful message, this life-changing gospel, this destiny-altering word of God. Why do so few people believe it? He asks and we're to ask. And to press on in this time of pre-communion to ask ourselves, do we believe it? This message of life and salvation and grace. Who has believed this gospel? We want to, to, to linger over these two questions in this, this opening verse of this wonderful chapter. And we want to learn four lessons uh, from uh, these two questions uh, that are here before us. From the first question... We want to learn about communicating Christ and confessing Christ. And from the second question, we want to learn about acknowledging grace and admiring greatness. Let's think of the the first question in, in, in this opening verse. Who has believed what he has heard from us? What he has heard from us. Here in this question is an example for us of communicating the gospel. That just as this prophet asserts what he has heard from us, that there has been this communication of this report, of this message, of this gospel about the servant. Here the prophet and his action is an example for us. To communicate, to share, to witness about Christ to others. Some people in this question have relayed to other people this message of the gospel. They have not left their neighbours to discover the truth for themselves, to be informed by revelation around them. They have not given them a booklet, but they have verbally shared the gospel, what he has heard from us. And here's a wonderful challenge, an example for us to communicate Christ. This phrase, he has heard from us, suggests that there is plurality in the communication of the message from us. The individual is is not alone in this world of unbelief. The the individual is is not struggling to communicate this message because of isolation. But alongside of this individual, there are others who believe the same message and have the same desire to share this message. (coughs) And that helps us, doesn't it? When we do it with others. When we witness with others. It's more than moral support. There is this higher level of encouragement and motivation and like-mindedness to communicate the message of Christ. And so Jesus sent out the disciples in twos. So God sent Aaron with Moses to Pharaoh. Joshua and Caleb stood together against the the unbelieving nation and the, the unbelieving spies. And here in in this question, there is this plurality, what he has heard from us. 
And the question implies that the message is authoritative. It is not something which they have discovered themselves, not something which they have formed themselves, but the message which is being given and communicated is something which has authority from God. It's been given in summary form in verses 13 to 15. It will be expanded and unpacked in verses 2 to 12 of the subsequent verses. Here is the gospel of God, the message from heaven brought down to them. Other messages, other news, other words and reports were no doubt circling in Isaiah's time. Economic reports from the Chancellor in Jerusalem was no doubt out there as well about foreign trade, market values, the price of olives or of sheep, and it would be of interest to the peoples of his time. War reports from the war office about how Babylon was acting and how Media Persia was rising up would also be there. There were many voices, there were many news items, but the prophet is interested in this. What about the message that they have heard from us, the prophets of God, the inspired, authoritative teachers on earth? What is their response? How have they reacted? This prophet believes this message himself. He is not speaking something which is external to him. Something which he is indifferent about. Something which he wants others to believe. That though he himself is not persuaded of it. Here is someone with conviction and persuasion. And this is what's paining him and interesting him. In asking this question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The COVID inquiry is revealing the inconsistency between what some minister, government ministers were demanding of the public and what they were acting on themselves. There, there seems to be different standards for us and for them. But this prophet is different. The message that he's concerned about the response to is a message which he's persuaded of himself. And he desires an answer to this important question. Who? has believed what he has heard from us. William Carey, a shoemaker, then a teacher before he became a missionary in India, was converted in a, in, a, in a wonderful way. His boss in the shoemaker factory was opposed to the gospel very vocally and visibly. But William Carey's colleague in the factory was also a Christian and the both of them witnessed to their boss it would have been hard for Carey to do it on his own he would have been pushed back he would have been humiliated he would have become despondent but with his colleague John they both witnessed to their boss and they did this for months despite the pushbacks and the oppression and the seeming indifference of their boss. And by God's grace, that boss came to Christ. At this point is emphasized in our question. What he has heard from us. From the church. From a plurality of believers. From those who stand together for the gospel. 
In our time, like Isaiah's time, there are reports about so many things which grip the attention of people. Reports about climate change. Reports about interest rate predictions. Reports about inflation. Reports about Bitcoin. But the question we're to have is, what is the response to the message of the gospel? Who has believed what he has heard from us? And that that question should be reflected on ourselves, on our interest, on our devotion to the gospel. Perhaps a test of our interest in the gospel practically could be what time do we spend reading the newspaper or online news compared to the time we spend reading our Bible? What reports are we more interested in? The reports about climate change, interest rates, economic policy, immigration. Or this report that the writer is mentioning here. Who has believed? Who's devoted to? Who's most interested in what he has heard from us? Perhaps parents in this week of pre-communion could show our interest in the, the message of the prophet by reading with our children at family worship the gospel accounts of the crucifixion and showing our interest and our devotion in the work of God's servant. Romans 10 and John 12 indicate that it's the responsibility of the living generation to communicate this message. Here in Isaiah 53 verse 1, it's Isaiah and the school of the prophets who are the the source of this message, the communicators of this message, what he has heard from us. It's Isaiah and his colleagues and the school of the prophets. But in John 12, it's Jesus and the apostles who are the communicators of the message. And they're interested in the same question in their time. Who has believed what they have heard from us? It's not Isaiah anymore and the school of the prophets in John 12. It's Christ and the apostles. Then in Romans chapter 10, the us is changed again to Paul and his colleagues in their missionary journey. And they're interested in the response to their preaching and to their gospel. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Not Isaiah then, not Jesus and the apostles then, but Paul and his companions then in Romans chapter 10. And so we learn that each living generation is to be the communicator of this gospel about God's servant coming from heaven, living, dying. Isaiah in his day communicated Jesus, in his day communicated Paul, in his day communicated John Welsh, in his day communicated Carey, in his day communicated, but this is our time. What a challenge for us to our town, to our work colleagues, to our neighbours. 
that they would hear from us this message of salvation. So the first lesson then for us in this communion time is let us communicate Christ. What he has heard from us. But secondly, the second lesson is in the the first part of the question, isn't it? Uh, Who has believed? And this is about the response, the proper response to the gospel, to the message. It's believing it. And that's the the, the burden of the, the prophet here and of the question. Who has believed what he has heard from us? But the implied answer in this question is not many. It's a kind of rhetorical question. The prophet knows the answer. This is why he's asking the question. It's more a lament than a question. E.J. Young comments that this is more an exclamation than a question. This question, this exclamation, this lament, it's driven by the incredulity of the writer. This glorious message, this incredible message, who has believed what he has heard from us? And the implied answer is, just a handful. Just a handful. This report about the servant, the saviour from heaven, it's not a weather report. It's not a report about river pollution. It's not a report about rare birds. The writer's incredulous here. Who has believed this report about the saviour, the servant of heaven, the one who will save us from hell and from sin? Who has believed it? Just a handful. Just a few. He's incredulous not only from the contents of this message, but, but he's, a, he's incredulous from the, 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 the behavior and the reaction of others to the message that we thought of this morning. In verse 15, the prophet is looking away down in time and looking out to the Gentiles and to the nations, and they, they will respond positively to the gospel. The kings will be awed. They will shut their mouths in adoration and wonder and praise and faith. They will see spiritually. They will understand by the work of the Spirit. They will embrace and their nations will embrace the gospel. And the the, the writer is seeing this vast harvest of souls in the future. And he's contrasting this with the handful of his time. Who has believed? what he has heard from us. Proper response is to believe. Because this report demands a response. It's not just a nice story, an interesting tale, a myth and fable from ancient times. But this is a life-changing, destiny-altering report And it demands a response by us. It's not like the weather report or a report on immigration. But this is a report, a message, a gospel. We must believe. Shows the only way of salvation. The only hope for any sinner, for any of us, for all of us. The writer has experienced the change himself. 
He's talking from a position of experience and knowledge. And in verse number three, he he talks about the the time of of unbelief. There was no beauty that we should desire him. The end of verse two. But now he's changed. He's a believer. He's transformed. He desires that others will know Christ. And will respond in this way. To him. Confessing Christ. Is another challenge for us. And we too live in a time when. There is less and less belief in Jesus Christ. In Scotland currently there are 400 church buildings for sale. In the church of Scotland alone. And other denominations in Scotland are similarly disposing of their church buildings. Why? Because they're old and crumbling and hard to repair and costly to keep. No. It's because they're empty. The experience of the prophet is our experience. Who has believed what he has heard from us? The implied answer is the same. Not many. The fault is not in the message. The fault is not in the messenger. The unbelief is in the heart of the hearer. The prophet is affected. He's pained. He's troubled. He sees other times in verse number 15. Times of blessing. Times when even the kings will respond positively to the message of the gospel. But this time is a barren time. A time when few believe. The tenses of Isaiah 53 are are really fascinating. I encourage you to to look at that. And maybe you've had sermons about this uh, in the past. But uh, basically uh, there is the the past tense and the future tense that's used uh, throughout this wonderful song. The the past tenses are are always used in relation uh, to the humiliation of the servant. To his coming, to his upbringing, to his death. And the future tenses are always used in relation to the glory of the servant. And so commentators make this point that it seems that the prophet is situating himself between the death and burial of Jesus and the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. Leopold says, a good image for us could be of two disciples Standing on a street corner in Jerusalem after Good Friday. The servant has come. He's been humiliated. He's been brought low. He's not yet risen and exalted and glorified. That's the tenses that are used. The glory is all future. The sufferings all past. And they're in this intervening time. And in that time, the prophet asks, Who has believed? The important thing for us is that however small the number of believers are, that we are among them. Communicating Christ, firstly. Confessing Christ, secondly. Then we move on to the the second question. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And again, there are two lessons on the surface 
of this question for us at this well-known question. And the first lesson is to acknowledge grace. And this is encapsulated in the last word in the verse, revealed. And this word really helps the prophet. And it helps us in this time of vast unbelief of all these churches closing down. And not just in Scotland. And not just in the church of Scotland. But the the answer, the fundamental answer relies here. Revealed. Few have believed. The explanation is not because they've not heard the gospel. But because they've never had the gospel supernaturally revealed to them. By the Spirit of God. The word revealed helps the torment of the prophet. Over the unbelief of those who'd heard. The word revealed puts us in our place. It emphasizes that we are the recipients. Not the originators. The getters. Not the givers. Of saving faith. In Jesus Christ. It asserts that we are blind in ourselves. Foolish by nature. That we do not know God savingly by our reason. And we cannot know him savingly by our reason. We cannot know God by ourselves. Revealed. We're to acknowledge grace. This is the biblical position, isn't it? Matthew eleven twenty seven. No one knows the Father, Jesus says, except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Chooses to reveal him. People in Israel in the first century saw Jesus, but they did not believe in him, many of them. The nation even saw him crucified, dying for the sin of the world. But they despised him and rejected him. This word is emphasizing the need for the work of the Spirit of God to reveal Jesus in the life of our covenant young people, in the life of the people around us, in our church building here, in in the life of those in our family who are unbelievers, in the life of those in our workplace who are unconverted. And our prayer is and our longing is and should be ever increasingly that God will reveal to them the grace of Christ. John Mackay comments, there is need for further divine action through the Holy Spirit before the full impact of the atoning work of the servant is appreciated and accepted. This word revealed, it's used in scripture and in our society sparingly, isn't it? And this point raises the importance of the object that is being revealed. We don't take your lunch, do you, boys and girls? into the the school canteen and set your lunchbox on the table, blow a trumpet and reveal what's on your sandwiches or what treats you have in your lunchbox. You don't have a big revelation of what you've got for your lunch that day. We don't cover our car out in Regent Street there with a special covering so that after church, we in a a illustrious fashion will, will reveal 
what car we have on the street. The term and practice of revealing is reserved for special objects. A rare painting is revealed in an art gallery. A new model of car is revealed at a prestigious show. A new fashion style is revealed. A new piece of farm machinery. A new idea, investment or product for a company is revealed. And so this term revealed indicates not only the supernatural nature and action that's required, but it indicates the preciousness of what's being revealed. The preciousness of Christ. The preciousness of the gospel. The necessity of grace is emphasized in in many people's lives. The necessity of this revelation of God, this revealing by God in the minds and hearts of people. William Carey was a really gifted linguist and and he had that gift that was developed and refined after his conversion, but he had that interest in languages and gift for languages before his conversion and before he was a Christian he was reading the Greek New Testament not because he was interested in his sin and in the Saviour but because he wanted to learn Greek how close he was to the very word of God and yet not a Christian he needed The gracious revelation of God. Thornwell, the American uh, theologian, was not a Christian and he loved books and and studied 15 hours a day. And he went on one occasion into a second-hand bookstore and in God's incredible providence, sitting on the counter was a copy of the Confession of Faith. He'd never heard of it before and he bought it and took it home that night and read it through from cover to cover And he writes down that the chapter that impressed him was on justification. What a chapter. How close he was to the gospel. But he needed this gracious work of the Spirit to save him. We are to acknowledge grace. It's humbling for us. We Others, everyone, needs this revelation of the gospel by the Spirit of God. We're totally dependent on God to accomplish this. I remember an unbeliever saying to me, I was only 16 at the time. I can be saved any time I want. How wrong that man was. D.L. Moody was derided on one occasion by a mocker of the gospel. The man shouted at D.L. Moody, I saw one of your converts coming out drunk from a local tavern. Yes, D.L. Moody replied, that was one of my converts. But it wasn't one of God's. Because God's converts have this supernatural revelation of the gospel. This is comforting for us. It's helping for us, helpful for us. It helped the prophet, didn't it? He was frustrated. He was despondent. He was down. Was it him? 
Was it the communication of, of the gospel? Was it his mannerisms? Was it his tone? Was it his lack of eloquence? And he alights in this word. Revealed. It's the sovereign work of God. And lastly, in this communion time, let us admire greatness. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In the Bible, the arm, the human arm, is used as a metaphor of the strength of God. Deuteronomy 7, verse 19, for example, we read the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt. One writer defines the term as the power of God exercised in salvation, the arm of the Lord. And yet, the incredible thing in this prophecy is that the power, that the might, that the majesty, that the strength of God is revealed in the humble servant. Oswald asks, who could believe that when the arm of the Lord was bared to deliver his people, it would look like this? This verse is a climax of references in Isaiah. And you can look at these with a concordance later on. Chapter 40, 48, 51, 52, 52, 52. Mention the arm of the Lord. The power of God. The might of God. And now that arm of the Lord is in, in personalized form in Jesus Christ. The very power of God. Doing God's work. And commentators draw this an interesting comparison to, to, to exalt this point and to enrich this point by, by comparing this term, the arm of the Lord, with the doctrine of the finger of God in the Bible. And, and there's some key moments and events where we read of the finger of God. We read of it in Psalm 8 that we sung this morning, the, the work of the heavens, the work of your fingers. There's creation and its vastness and glory and extensiveness. The writer says, so powerful is God that it was done by his finger. Exodus 34, we read about God with his finger writing on tables of stone the Ten Commandments. Daniel 5, we have the finger of God in the wall writing the judgment for the king and for all unbelievers weighed in the balances and found wanting. There's the finger of God in creation. The finger of God in giving the law. The finger of God in announcing judgment. But in contrast to this, the commentators say, here is the arm of the Lord. The arm of the Lord. The might of God. The power of God. The strength of God. And what's it doing here? It's securing our salvation. The finger of God for creation. The finger of God for the law. The finger of God for judgment. But the arm of the Lord. For our salvation. And preservation. And final glorification. If you watched Outback Restorers. A recent one that showed a 1950s BMW Bavarian. Uh, that these mechanical engineers and experts sourced in Arizona. 
What a beat-up BM it was. Rusted, dented, punctured, windowless, scrapped. And they took it back to their garage. They inserted a key. An incredible moment was when they turned the key. The engine of this beat-up, scrapped Bavarian BMW burst into life. Here's the servant. And he's weak. And despised. And rejected. And ignored. And there's many who won't believe in him. But he's the arm of the Lord. And the might and power of God is within him. And he is our saviour. Who will save us. Who will keep us. Who will bring us to heaven. Who can save all our covenant children. And keep all our covenant children. And can store the the, the backsliders that we know of. And the unregenerate of our town. Here he is. The mighty. Unstoppable. Arm. Of the Lord. Who. Who. The writer asks. He's down. He's lamenting. They are small things. And sometimes we're there. Our focus is on the wrong things. And the prophet saw the unbelief. And the unbelievers. And the handful of faithful. And we can see them too. And the poor attendances in St. Mark's built in 1817 up the road in Regent Street, Presbyterian built in 1835 in our own congregation built in 1854. But that's not all he saw. And it's not all we're to see. He and we are also to see the arm of the Lord. 